coming off of last week's uh, kind of discussing the creation days up front and, and then kind of getting that somewhat, not, not out of the way, but something that is, um, you know, able to be discussed and thought through, um, maybe now equip you on your own to evaluate and to consider the length of creation days. I, this morning, want to give a general introduction then to the actual book of Genesis, um, how, how the book functions, kind of like mark out our, the contours of the book in a very general way. I'm not going to work through each chapter and so forth, but just give you the basic breakdown of the book of Genesis um, in the largest possible way, um, and then give you kind of the structure, the authorship, and then a brief word about the purpose of the book, and then hopefully that will equip you and arm you as we go then into the book. So we'll actually be doing exposition of Genesis beginning next week. But by way of beginning our time together as we approach the book of Genesis, I hope that you've seen even just in the discussion of the days of creation, of which, again, I'm sure you've already thought all that through and you're involved in that conversation at different points in your own study and Bible study and uh, Christian experience. But the significance of Genesis cannot be overstated. Um, As we approach the book in our time together for a season of time, nearly every doctrine, so uh, depending on what you're reading, what you're studying, what you're hearing and preaching, or what you're trying to apply within the church, nearly every doctrine is traced back to the book of origins. Traced back, you're going to find it in its roots in Genesis, considered the doctrine of God. That's what we'll look at next week. He blasts onto the page, in the beginning, God. And then you find greater revelation throughout the course of the Bible. But the very beginning doctrine of God starts in Genesis. Consider covenant, world, man, sin, salvation, church. All of them find their introduction in the book of Genesis. So we have our work cut out for us. It is an important um, book for us as believers. Luther Uh, That is, Martin Luther commented this way. The first chapter is written in the simplest language. Which, again, if you've read, you agree. Luther's Captain Obvious here. The first chapter is written in the simplest language. There it is. You can read it. God said it. Here it is. It occurred. Day one. Yet, it contains matter of the utmost importance and matters that are very difficult to understand. Again, that's why I mentioned to you last week um, that it was for this very reason. It's the simplistic element of Genesis, yet the nuance of it and the difficulty of interpreting it that it is among the Hebrews, it was always forbidden, as I mentioned last week, for anyone under 30 to read the chapter aloud or to expound it unto others. So again, um, it is very straightforward, but it is multi-layered, and every, nearly every doctrine that you hold dear finds its origin in the book of Genesis. Even when you're out, let's consider the gospel that we've sang about this morning, that you hold dear through faith, the object of your faith who is Christ the Lord, the Apostles' Creed that we rehearse, we find that even the story of redemption getting started in Genesis 3. Um, so by the time you're out in Revelation, you're, you're a long way from home. Thank you. My pen is bothering the microphone. It's probably been bothering your ears. Um, so again, for the introduction to the book of Genesis, 
I want to begin with the structure. If you were thinking about the book of Genesis, uh, the easiest way to break it down, I'll, I'll give you a, a little bit more. There are like 10 breakdowns within the book. Maybe you didn't conceive it that way. If you look at the book of Genesis and you're working through the book, you'll see there's basically 10 divisions. Um, but for non-micromanaging purposes, we'll just step out of those 10 divisions. We'll step up and we'll just say there's two halves. Um, knowing that I'm speaking simply of the most general breakdown of the book of Genesis. If you're to read it and, and then conceive of it, how should I consider the book of Genesis? I'm just going to simply say, here, we're just going to break it in half, and we've got two halves that then comprise a whole. Now, if we're to go inside of that sphere, we would find smaller divisions within it. You'll find about roughly ten. The two are simply this, Genesis 1 through 11, which is the one that we're going to begin with and end with in our time in Genesis. Our time will simply deal with chapters 1 through 11. If you were to characterize the first half, so here you have the entire work of Genesis, and now it's broken into halves. And if you were to look at the first half that comprises the whole, you'd simply say this, it's the general history of mankind. So it involves you if you're a human being. So there you go. That, that, that there is, that, that your life is found. The, the idea, the origin of your life, uh, how, how to analyze it, its importance, who you are as a human being, what that means for dignity, what that means for you sexually, ethically. All of those elements you will find in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It has to do with general mankind's history and origins. So chapters 1 through 11, the general history of mankind. The second portion is much longer, right? If you notice, the book is much longer than 11 chapters. The second portion of Genesis that comprises the whole is the special history of God's people. So you have Genesis 1 through 11, the general history of all mankind. Then you have, beginning with 12 through 50, the special history of God's people that begins with the individual Abraham. Now, we spent some time earlier dealing with the Abrahamic covenant in our uh, covenant theology series that we just finished a few weeks ago. But you remember, with Abraham in Genesis 12, coming from Abraham then comes a covenant people. Uh, from chapter 12, Genesis 12, all the way through the rest of God's revelation is the epic story that is told throughout the remaining books of God's covenant people, whose condition is met and their history fulfilled in the birth of a savior, Jesus Christ. That's the story of Holy Scripture. So, and and that's not some ancillary point off to the side that the entire thing culminates in the Messiah. What that means for you and for me is the hope of Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the interpretive key to the entire book of Genesis. He, he is the interpretive key, to, indeed, to the entire Old Testament text. The, it, it culminates in him. So, so from him we read back and we see that he is foreshadowed everywhere in it. His promises are made therein. Those of faith rest upon him, similar as we do upon that same saving object, Jesus Christ. So he is the interpretive key to the entire book of Genesis and, indeed, to the entire Old Testament. So our time in Genesis 1 through 11 will deal with the Lord Jesus Christ being foreshadowed, being promised, being held out as the uh, Savior who is to come. So from structure, you now kind of have it. If, you were, if, if we were to throw out a quiz, how many have, uh, what are the two halves of the book of Genesis? You could say the general uh, history of mankind. And then from 12 to 50, uh, the story of God's covenantal people beginning with Abraham that culminates in Christ. Authorship, just uh, for a little bit of of, uh, uh, grounding there in authorship. 
Um, Moses is seen to be historically uh, the author of the book of uh, Genesis. In fact, uh, Moses, as you, I'm sure, are well aware, is the author of the Pentateuch. So you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, if you were to think, who, who wrote all of that text of scripture that then I'm reading and I'm learning from? Who, who is the author of that historically held? Who, who is the author that we would still say, indeed, is the author of our time in Genesis? Who's communicating to us by the spirit of the Lord? It's Moses. Um, Moses is the minister par excellence. When you think of, you know, what function does Moses have? How are we to perceive of his ministry to Israel? We're to consider him the, the, the ultimate minister uh, of word who declares to the people of God, that covenant people, beginning in Genesis 12, really, and, and then going through Exodus, the Exodus events, and then through Numbers and, and, and Deuteronomy, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You're, you're going through this literature, and Moses is exhorting the people of God. That's who he is, minister par excellence of the word. And then he mediates, as that preacher, he's mediating the story of salvation to the people of God casting their hope upon the same saving object that your hope is resting upon, the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who Moses is, minister par excellence, everywhere in the Pentateuch. And there's a small portion, if we were to think, where did he write it? So, so how did it get written down? At the end of Moses' life, generally speaking, is kind of where it's placed, where he began to write an epic story. That he sat down to write the story of origins for the people of God for you, for me, for Israel. Now, the context, historically setting, is they're there awaiting to enter the promised land. There are people gathered, and they're getting ready to go into the promised land to begin the book of Joshua, right, where there's the conquest. They began taking the land that God had promised them. And upon, just prior to entering into that conquest season for the people of God, Moses sat down as essentially his last, his, his magnum opus, that is, to leave behind that which he grasps and knows and understands. And what God then moved within him to write by the power of the Spirit without error and without fallibility to where your faith this very day can rest upon it as true, integral. He wrote the Pentateuch, essentially, beginning with, well, let's see, how should we start? In the beginning, God. Right? And Moses then undertakes this beautiful writing from Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. Um, I'll give you a small piece of authorship. Uh, so, so it doesn't anywhere in, it, it never names Moses as the author in the book of Genesis itself. He doesn't come right out and say, I, Moses, am writing this for your benefit. Um, yet we do see him uh, admit to his own, his own authorship in Deuteronomy, which is, again, when he's writing the entire section of the Pentateuch to arm Israel with their faith as they enter into a, a polytheistic land. So a story of origins is critical at that point. I'll read it for you. You don't need to turn there, and then we'll move on to the purpose of Genesis. But listen to Moses, and this is Deuteronomy. And you'll find this in Deuteronomy 32, 33, and 34, right before Moses dies and doesn't enter into the conquest period with Israel because of his own disobedience. But as he's looking over the people of God, and Joshua is emerging as that leader who will then take his spot and he will bring the people into the promise. Moses says this in Deuteronomy 31, beginning in verse 24. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law 
and put it beside, put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. And that book of the law of which he's describing is this work that we're going to study for the next few weeks, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and for us particularly, Genesis 1 through 11. One last piece on authorship. I know that you guys are not in the realm of, uh, of conversing with biblical scholars and trying to argue for Mosaic authorship. I get it. But there is, just in case you were doing some sort of Bible study, and here you are reading up on things, and there's different theories, and who believes in Mosaic authorship. There's another contested theory out there outside of Mosaic authorship. The challenge to that I would arm you with and myself with is our Lord himself identifies Moses as the author in John 5, where he's speaking to the Jews. And he identifies Moses as he who wrote these scriptures. And then he identifies in that conversation what Moses wrote about principally, which is a, a key thing for us to remember our time in Genesis as well. Not only did Moses write it, but our Lord tells us what he wrote about while he was writing it. Do you remember what that is? He says, Moses wrote about me. And that's a critical thing for us to remember again. We go back to read Moses. What are we learning? What are we treasuring? What are we grasping from a story of origins? We're going to see the beauty of the gospel. That's what Moses wrote about. And indeed, he was its author. To the purpose of Genesis, so from structure, you have two halves to the book. Authorship is mosaic, that is, it is Moses, the minister par excellence of the Old Testament, and then finally, the portion of purpose. Why must Israel know that God created all things? So when, when Moses sits down, here he is on the plains of Moab, as I said, and looking over the people of God, getting ready to pass over and enter into the promised land as he sits down, moved of the Spirit, to write this story of origins. To begin with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. To begin that way, why must Israel, and then I would move it in these moments to why must you, individual, know that God created all things? Why is that important? And the answer that I would provide for you for our time for the next few moments together is simply this. Why must I, Adam Thomas, why must you, fellow believer, why must we together know that God created all things so that we may be drawn to him as the workman that he is? Not fashioning idols of our own imaginations, reinventing what it means to be human, but submitting as humans, as creatures created by the creator, that our lives are not autonomous. Indeed, they have agency. You're making choices all the time. And your agency or your choices are not, though, autonomous. They need to be submitted to someone outside of yourself. They need to be in submission to your creator, who owns all things in heaven and in earth. Why must we know that he created all things? So that we may be drawn to him as the workman that he is, and thereby conclude that everything depends upon him. And that our lives, that is your life, likewise resides in him and consists of his pure grace. That is a critical piece to studying this, the story of origins. That you understand that your life has agency. Yes, 
you, you can move, you come, you go, you make decisions, you make good ones, you make bad ones, but they're never autonomous. They don't stand alone in a vacuum. You're not free to do whatever you want, right? You're not free to fly. If you, if you jump off the building, you're going to crash on the ground. You have agency to jump off, but you don't have autonomy to decide. You're going to bear out some wings and take off. You're accountable. You're a creature accountable to a creator in your agency decisions. God then, who created all things, is he who owns your life. Your life moves in and out of his presence, consisting of his, his pure benevolence and grace. Turn to Acts 17 if you would. I want to stop here for a moment. Turn to Acts 17. It's interesting how creation, again, the story of origins, is critical for human beings to grasp that they might therefore understand how we might live, how we might uh, honor others, how we might honor ourselves, how we might grasp what it means to be human, what it means to live, and what it means to die. Acts 17, if you're there, this is Paul's, this is the entire argument that Paul is making about how we must be drawn by creation to God as a workman. And if we are and we see him at work, we see that Everything resides in and consists of his pure grace. This means that is about you and your ethical decisions in your life as you're raising your family. How will you raise your family? Is God going to be at the center of your own relationships? Is God at the center? Because the, the ethics of your life with another is, must be driven on by the truth that you are a creature created in the image of God. And that comes with necessary constraints. Furthermore, if you're a Christian, look at the way Paul addresses it in Acts 17. Now, to give you the context here, Paul is in Athens. If you jump into verse 16, it's important here because the argument is going to flow. Paul is addressing the philosophical thoughts of those of his day. You see two schools of philosophy by the time you get to 18. I'll touch on them in just a moment. But begin in verse 16. Look at as Paul makes what is his most famous, probably, his most famous speech. This, this argument in Athens. And he's addressing the wise of his age, right? So at this point, as we're hearing the text, we would set it against the wise of our own age. Um, against our own counsels. Against those who are naysayers and unbelievers. Who create other big narratives of humanity. Of what it means to be human. How are we defining it biblically? And watch how Paul addresses that same discussion, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Right? So that, that's, the, that's the beginning issue for him is all of these idols. Why? Because what should we be drawn to? God as the workman that he is. Not be drawn to what we perceive God to be and then create idols of our own imagination to worship, but the true God who created all things. This is what provokes his heart. And then watch his speech as it follows. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who had been there. Verse 18, 
the secularists. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, which is like the, the center area where you can imagine if you do, or you've done uh, history and so forth in class or taken philosophy courses, you know, this area where it's uh, kind of an open theater, as it were, of open discussion, right? So you're here, and it's a free exchange of ideas. And, and somebody says, hey, what is that guy over there babbling about? Or we heard something about Jesus and resurrection, the Nazarene. Bring him in. Bring him, in, bring him on over here. Now, again, verse 19. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying... May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then we have this little commentary by Luke, verse 21. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. In other words, philosophy. This is what's going on here. It is Greek thought, Greek philosophy, right? And so Paul walks into this situation, and notice what he says. I'll begin with his speech in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, right? From who? Verse 18, those of the Epicureanism and the Stoic school of philosophy. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Then notice his movement. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Look where his apologetic begins. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. And now, now look at the thought of, why do I need to know in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? You right here, sitting right here, why do you need to know that? Paul zeroes in on it. Again, verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move, and have our being. 
as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul zeroes in verse 29, if this is the case. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, Paul's condemning the philosopher's bent toward willfully closing their eyes so as to look upon the things that are designed to show God's majesty and give a definite witness of his being the creator. That is, as you look about in creation, neither they, that is, the naysayers, nor we, who are believers, but don't live by proper constraint, neither one of us can get away from the fact that God of the Bible is our creator. You cannot hide from it. Nature speaks forth that God in heaven is our creator, and we are subject to him. David writes in Psalm 19.1, he says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. Do you see, you've probably read that psalm multiple times, probably uh, maybe even memorized it. Have you stopped to think about it and its implications for your life? Willful disobedience is willful because you know that God is there. Your own conscience cries out to you as you would gaze upon nature. Listen to David, Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. You can't be anywhere that the glory of God is not proclaimed. He then goes on. And the sky above. So, so, so who exists on the sphere that is not under the sky above? No one. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is nowhere that we can hide from the fact, the truth of the matter, that God of the Bible is the creator of all that is. And that that comes with necessary constraints for our own lives. We went camping this last week for, for two nights. Uh, it was interesting. Um, and uh, we, we, we survived because we're, we're here today. So uh, had a great time, uh, had a, lots of fun uh, memories uh, for sure, loaded up on memories. We're, we're good for a while on memories. Um, the, but the, the, one, the second night, it was Thursday night, we were staying. Um, and it was, it was uh, uh, spellbinding, the beauty of the sky. We happen to have just like the most perfect Thursday night in great contrast to our Wednesday night experience. <laughs> but we had the most beautiful sky uh, Thursday night. And we were sitting around, you know, as you do, a campfire, right? And you're sitting there, and everyone's like kind of zoned, staring at the bluest flame. 
and sticking a stick in there and wait until it catches on fire or something. And yet you're, you're just blown away when you all start observing the sky that is appearing from nowhere and the beauty of all the constellations and stars. And then when we went to bed in our tent, it was kind of open at top so we could see out of our tent and see the same canopy where we were sleeping and gazing upon this beauty. We all talked about it. We were all moved by it. And then during that exact same time of looking at the stars, and everyone was in love with it, everyone. And then looking at it, then we were hearing all the life forms that were surrounding our tent, right? All the little creatures that are, live with some sense of ecological purpose. And so we're talking about, oh, this sound and this animal creating this sound and this, this little bug communicating to this group of bugs. And we're sitting there talking about all these different elements of the, of the ecosystem that we're surrounded by and that the beauty of the stars and different galaxies. And again, it strikes you that there's intelligent design to all that you're observing within which your small little life exists. And you realize that God has cast the universe and the stars in place. And I know it in two forms. I know it because as sure as I stand here and observe this sheer beauty, I know my conscience cries out to me that there is a creator. And here, confessionally, as believers, we know it as well from the declaration of Genesis 1. We cannot escape it. And neither can the secularists when they also gaze upon those stars. Now they can say they do, but they don't, and they cannot escape the reality that there is a creator and that that means something for your agency. This is precisely um, what Calvin was describing when he says this, quote, the world from its heights to its depths is like a mirror. It compels us to contemplate God who is by nature and in essence invisible. Right? Moses asks, if you remember, Minister Moses, he asks, let me, let me behold your glory. Let, let me see you. And he can't. Because indeed God by essence is invisible. But he is everywhere made visible in creation. You behold him. Look at Romans 1. Turn over to Romans 1 just for a moment. Acts, Romans, and this is, again, Paul's argument about the power of creation, about the call that it has upon the individual and the way that it ought to shape your agency, let alone, indeed, if you're a confessing believer. This is what Paul says, indeed, that he is by nature and essence invisible, but he is everywhere made visible through creation verse 20 of chapter 1 for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world where do we where, where, where do we behold this divine nature what do we perceive it from what do we meditate upon how can we look and see what is otherwise invisible Paul says at the very end of verse 20 in the things that have been made recently um, well let me finish the text uh, if you go back in Romans 1 just to see the ethical element of that Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed 
from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And, and, and here, here's the angle, right? Who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. That's what they do in it. Verse 19, where I picked up, says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So in light of that, at the end of verse 20, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, right, they could perceive him. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So in the end, the wrath is revealed because what can be perceived and known is suppressed. Why? <coughs> so that we can consider ourselves autonomous and be our own gods and live our own lives. Recently, I have been reading um, a, a book, very fascinating. It's entitled A Brief History of Thought, A Philosophical Guide to Living. I found it striking to find Acts 17 referenced in the book. And in it, in this brief philosophical guide to living, the, um, the, the, the author is a philosopher at the University of Paris. And he marks out what the point of all philosophical pursuit is. For him, it is this. It's answering the problem of death. That, that's what the pursuit of philosophy is to this philosopher of the University of Paris. Everything at rock bottom is to deal with the problem of death. He says it like this, quote, unable to bring himself to believe in a God who offers salvation, right? Like Romans 1. So, so here you are. The, the, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Unable, quote, unable to bring himself to believe in a God who offers salvation. The philosopher is above all one who believes that by understanding the world. Okay, great. So unrighteousness is suppressing the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. That is, you can reflect upon it with insight. Look at it. For how long has it been revealed since the creation of the very world and the things that have been made? But the philosopher is one who believes that by understanding the world, by understanding ourselves and others as far as our intelligence permits, we shall succeed in overcoming fear of death through clear-sightedness rather than by blind faith, end quote. So in other words, back to Acts 17 in your mind, if religion can be defined, just broadly speaking, if religion can be defined as the doctrines of salvation, then the great philosophers can be defined as the doctrines of salvation without the help of a God. 
that is secularism. The pursuit of the doctrine of redemption apart from the help of a God. But why must we find redemption apart from God? Because we will have no one to rule over us. We'd rather be autonomous and damned than redeemed and accountable. But as you consider the text, as Paul here even speaks, Acts 17, Romans 1, there is no salvation without the help of God. Because God is the fountain and origin of all things. That is why you must know that he created the heavens and the earth. He is the origin and the fountain of all things. And if we grasp that, and Israel grasps that, on the plains of Moab as they go forward in their redemptive history, then going into the conquest and going into the promised land, they would grasp that everything in their lives depends upon him. And so would you. And so would I. If we grasp that he is in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. We recognize then, indeed, that everything in our lives depends upon him. Your next job opportunity, getting that job, your next home, your next vehicle, your next health-related crisis that you will overcome or that God has purpose for, you'd recognize that everything depends on him. That everything is founded on and sustained by his power. That is the story of God said, and it was so. Everything is founded on and sustained by his power, and thus everything in the end is accountable to him, both in life and in death. Every one of us are accountable to him in life in our choices, in our ethics, and we'll see that from the book of Genesis and in our dying moment. And we can see all of this in creation, that indeed we are accountable to someone that is greater than ourselves. But how do we improve upon it? So if creation is one school, and this is our time of closing, if creation is one school where indeed we can learn, sitting out underneath the tent with the kids was amazing, and we were instructed deeply. And indeed, if you can be instructed in the school of life, that is simply by way of creation, it cries out to you, Paul says, in the things that have been made, you can see that there is a creator. You can see at least his divine nature and his power. If you can see it in creation, how do we then take what we saw that night with the kids underneath that starry sky, and how do we improve upon it? Luther comments this way, let us turn to Moses as a better teacher. We can follow him with greater safety than the philosophers and the wise of our age, who without the benefit of the word continue to debate about unknown matters. So how do we improve upon the school of nature? By the benefit of the word. So for our next several weeks, we'll do just that. We'll benefit from the word 
as we look at Genesis 1 through 11, beginning next week, of in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We'll turn our gaze to Moses. And when naysayers are outside in your different exchanges, and as students, many of you, at different times, engage in this philosophical thought of origins, to whom do we turn? To Moses, a better teacher. To be reminded of our own ethical lives that we live each day as parents, as husbands, as wives, family, friends, individuals with agency. We find in Moses a better path of obedience as we submit to him rather than seek to live autonomous lives without God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the text of Genesis.